It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I bring you a message today from the people of Ireland. The Irish desire peace with England and with the rest of the world. It is a question of a republic. We want the creation of a new Ireland. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. I wish to talk to you this evening about... (laughs) Welcome to the History of Ireland. I am back after my usual Christmas break. This one a little longer as I was off getting engaged to a certain assistant producer of this podcast. With that done and dusted, I can safely say I'm very excited for 2024 and eager to get stuck back into the show. The winter of 1922 into 23 was a difficult one. Early December had seen execution after execution of anti-treaty IRA men as well as the murder of Sean Hales. And people were uncertain about the future. As the editor of the Connacht Tribune wrote, Christmas 1922 falls upon an Ireland riven with the saddest of all strife, the strife of brothers, whose economic life is ebbing, where joy has been turned to sorrow because of the conditions that we ourselves have brought about. While a writer for the Freeman's Journal called for truce, Let us put away pride and bitterness, he said, and remember we are Christians and brothers. Each side has much to forgive. To both sides, I would say, you are ruining your ideal of democratic government on one side and of complete independence on the other by the violent methods you use. Nothing founded on force lasts. But sadly, a truce was still a far ways off. And, as historian Colin Kenny explains, spring was about to bring some final acts of viciousness and a further waste of lives before open hostilities came to an end. Over November, December and January of 1922 into 23, the anti-treaty IRA were struggling to survive, but still hell-bent on disrupting the new Irish Free State as much as possible. Across the country, a policy of, quote, Systematic and continuous destruction was underway. Here was one set of orders given to anti-treaty forces, laying out in quite a bit of detail the approach to be taken. Roads. These are to be made impassable at as many points as possible. Bridges are to be destroyed by explosives wherever this can be done. Roads to be trenched, blocked with trees or masonry, telegraph poles or other material available. In certain localities, the roads may be flooded by breaking down the canal banks. Barricades, to be of any use, must be placed at frequent intervals at one section of the road. Railways, to be destroyed by every possible way. Bridges to be destroyed by explosives. Small stations to be attacked and burnt. Where station buildings cover the tracks, they should be destroyed so as to block the permanent way. 
Station coverings are generally supported on, on cast iron columns, and one or two blows with a heavy sledgehammer will generally knock these to pieces. By blocking the railway line by means of the station buildings at two points, protection will be afforded to a demolition party working between these two points. Before the obstructions are cleared and an armoured train reaches them, the demolition party will have had time to completely wreck the train. If a train is held up, it need not be run into an obstruction to wreck it. Four men with sledges can destroy the wheels of all carriages and the locomotive in a few minutes. By destroying the wheels on either side only, some carriages can be thrown across the other track. The carriages should be soaked with paraffin and set on fire, and the mechanism of the locomotive battered to pieces. Now, how's that for thorough? And this destruction of the railways was so effective that a specific regiment of the army had to be created, the Railway Protection and Maintenance Corps. Made up of just over 3,000 men, it consisted of a mix of soldiers and railwaymen who travelled the country in armoured trains and trucks, defending the vital train network. And still, Ireland's largest railway company estimated that at the end of the year, its line had been damaged in 75 places, 42 engines had been derailed, and 51 bridges destroyed. This was the height of the guerrilla phase of the Civil War with people like Tom Barry leading a short conquest of towns in the Midlands. He managed to take Carrick and Shore, Thomastown and Mulnavit before the Free State Army pushed him back due to a lack of men and equipment. Backing up all of this destruction of roads and trains and the conquering of places like Thomastown were common Naman. As the anti-treaty side was forced to go deeper into hiding and break into smaller groups, it became imperative for this guerrilla conflict for common man to act as supply lines, a means of communication, and, well, keep the scattered army vaguely in some kind of order. One contemporary described how common man organized women to assist flying columns, to attend to the wounded, and arrange for changes of clothing and transfer of ammunition and arms. The anti-treaty IRA and common man's actions had a real impact on the people of Ireland. I have two little stories to illustrate this. One from W.B. Yeats and one from yours truly. We'll start with the less poetic of the two. According to family history, my great-grandfather was feeling ill on St. Stephen's Day. Now, all his friends and family told him he had just eaten too much on Christmas Day. But the stomachache did not disappear. And eventually, it was decided the man must have appendicitis. He had to be rushed to a hospital. This being West Cork, the anti-treaty IRA had blown up the local bridge and because of this, well, he didn't make it to the hospital in time and the inflamed appendix exploded inside him, killing him there and then. Admittedly, a different kind of explosion to the one we're used to hearing about, but one that was no less a terrifying story for a young podcast host as he lay in hospital at the age of 9 or 10 waiting for his appendix to be removed. Yates also tells a story of having a bridge blown up near his home in County Galway. The anti-treaty forces arrived, and as Yates tells it, quote, they forbade us to leave the house, but were otherwise polite, even saying at last, good night, thank you, as though we had given them the bridge. A few years later, he would go on to publish Meditation in the Time of Civil War. It's a great collection of poems that I recommend you go read, but the road at my doorstep is one of my favourite, 
and a particularly vivid description of the time, with many seeing the pear tree mentioned as a metaphor for the entire country. It goes like this. An affable irregular, a heavy-built Falstaffian man, comes cracking jokes of civil war, as though to die by gunshot with the finest play under the sun. A brown lieutenant and his men, half-dressed in national uniform, stand at my door, and I complain of the foul weather, hail and rain, a pear tree broken by the storm. I count those feathered balls of soot, the moorhen guides upon the stream, to silence the envy in my thought, and turn towards my chamber caught in the cold snows of a dream. The cold snows of a dream, indeed. Winter of 1922 and 23 was not especially nice. And every day that the fight continued, it further hurt the Irish Free State. With one estimate made in 1923, stating that the whole war cost the country £50 million, equates to about 30% of the country's entire revenue at the time. But despite all of this, it was becoming increasingly clear that the anti-treaty side had no real path to victory. As historian John Borganovo describes, guerrilla fighters were hard-pressed on the defensive and aware of the widespread war weariness and hostility among the local population. The expanded National Army developed new tactics to tackle the IRA. They deployed special units to deter agrarian conflict and flooded troubled areas with mobile columns to hound and harass Republican flying columns. Republican arrests and executions mounted. The Free State controlled most of the country by the close of 1922, and for the first time, IRA fatalities began to outnumber the National Armies. Unlike the British Army, Free State soldiers understood how guerrilla warfare was organised and could identify Republican leaders and their supporters within the community. Basically, a superiorly armed Free State Army, a lack of support from the wider population, and the brutal policy of execution by the Free State left the anti-treaty forces well and truly demoralised by the end of 1922. This is highlighted by the acts of Liam Deasy in January 1923. Deasy was a corkman and basically the second-in-command of the anti-treaty forces. In a skirmish in Clonmel on January 15th, Deasy was captured and sentenced to death. However, DC issued a public statement calling for, quote, the immediate and unconditional surrender of all arms and men as required by General Mulcahy. This was followed by anti-treaty prisoners all across the country calling for an end to the conflict. As Borganovo put it, the demoralized DC and the dissenting prisoners were saying out loud what many Republican leaders and rank and file thought privately, that armed resistance no longer offered Republicans a way to defeat the treaty. And on February 9th, the government announced a, quote, temporary suspension of executions, giving anti-treaty leaders the chance to reply to DC's call for a surrender. They even offered amnesty to anyone who surrendered before February 18th. But Liam Lynch, the anti-treaty leader, was having none of it. Lynch was not blind to the difficulties facing the anti-treaty forces. In September, he'd written that the disaster of this war is sinking to my very bones. Who could have dreamt all our hopes could have been so blighted? 
While in December, he wrote to his mother, saying, Would that English hounds had tracked me down, rather than old comrades who had been false to their allegiance. But despite all this, he still refused to surrender. And in fact, one senior anti-treaty IRA officer even went as far to say that, quote, Lynch's iron will alone kept the civil war going. Now, that might be giving Lynch too much credit, but regardless, the fight did continue. And in some parts of the country, the fighting sank to even more barbaric depths. In fact, March became known in Kerry as the Month of Terror. Next episode, we'll look at that month and the conflict in Kerry and uncover the horrors of what occurred in Ballyseedy. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. If you want to go further, you can support the show, get ad-free listening and bonus content on our Patreon page. Simply follow the Patreon link in the show notes or visit our website, thehistoryofireland.com. You can also get in touch through the website or on Facebook and Twitter. It's always great hearing from you guys. And if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. The History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dole, with music by Liam Doyle and additional help from assistant producer Aoife Murphy. This podcast was recorded in the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.